uh, now that the United Nations Convention has been signed since 30 years ago and has been in force since 94, we can say that we are in the post-codification era. The dynamics of negotiation for the big text on the law of the sea are finished and the convention has been uh, put to uh, the control of the practice of states. We have more than 15 years of practice based on a convention in force, 30 years of practice in which the convention signed perhaps not in force for the first few years, has been very influential. Now we are in a totally different era. And perhaps it is a good idea to stop for a second to consider which are the sources of the law of the sea in the post-codification era. Of course, the key document we refer to is still today the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. This is the first text to which anybody in a position to take decisions or uh, considering Law of the Sea questions from a more scholarly view uh, will refer to whenever an issue concerning the oceans and the seas arises. Still, we have to underscore that the law of the sea is mostly the law of the sea convention, but not exclusively the law of the sea convention. We have an array of sources we have to consider uh, in order to have a complete picture of uh, the various kinds of rules of international law that have to do with the sea. First of all, we have to clarify the relationship between the Convention and customary international law. Uh, the Convention incorporates and codifies many international law rules that before the Convention were customary. In part, they were also incorporated in the Geneva Conventions, but in part, they developed and emerged in international law after the Geneva Convention, such as, for instance, the rules on the exclusive economic zone on, or on archipelagic waters. Uh, the Law of the Sea Convention not only incorporates rules of customary law, it also is a powerful element in pushing international law in its development. Many rules that are in the Convention and which were, did not correspond to customary law 30 years ago now can be considered as um, belonging to customary law. The fact that more than 160 states, more than three quarters of the existing states are bound by the Convention as a treaty cannot 
but have an influence on the non-written law, on customary law. One could even ask whether there is still room for customary law in the law of the sea. And here the answer must rather emphatically be yes. Customary law is something you cannot get rid of. Uh, the convention, of course, is an element for the change of customary law. There is, a, we can say that there is a presumption that the rules not creating institutions or compulsory settlement of dispute in the convention correspond to customary law. But it is still a rebuttable presumption. One can always try to give evidence that certain particular provision is only of a conventional nature, does not correspond to customary law. Moreover, customary law is still the law applicable to relationship between or with states that are not parties to the convention. So customary law is there and will stay there. Third, third aspect uh, of this relationship, uh, the convention of course is a very broad text and may be read or interpreted as uh, applicable to many issues that perhaps the drafter had, drafters had not in mind when they worked at the text. Still, there may be issues, we'll mention a few, that in fact are out of the convention, whatever way you interpret it. And so they are covered by customary law. Perhaps one day even that chapter of customary law will be reduced in writing, perhaps with a convention for a specific subject. So now the first sources of the international law of the post-codification era are the codification convention and customary law with their complex interrelationship I tried to mention. However, these are not the only sources. We have to say that an important part, important role is played by treaties different from the convention. The com in various specific subfields of the law of the sea, treaties different from the convention have an important role. For instance, in the field of pollution prevention, we have conventions of a universal uh, scope like the London Dumping Convention of 1972, the Marpole Convention, a convention for pollution from vessels of 1973-78, and we have a number of regional groups of convention dealing with various aspects of pollution in specific areas of the sea. As far as fisheries are concerned, we have a number of uh, species-specific uh, conventions, like different tuna conventions, and we have also regional uh, conventions or uh, agreements or arrangements uh, in, in force. They don't cover exactly the whole of the seas, but altogether they cover most of the sea. And uh, we have also other kinds of treaties, some of, of treaties. Some of them have been adopted after the Law of the Sea Convention has uh, been um, 
adopted and sometimes even after it has entered into force. Perhaps the most notable is the 1995 agreement on fish, the so-called United Nations fish, fish Stocks Agreement. This is an agreement developed through a diplomatic conference convened by the UN at the UN that tries to develop the very short provision of Articles 63 and 64 of the Convention concerning the so-called straddling stocks, namely stocks whose life cycle is on both sides of the 200-mile line and highly migratory species like tuna. This is called an implementation agreement, namely an, an, an agreement whose aim is to implement short and controversial provisions of the Convention. In fact, it develops and probably amends the content of these provisions by combining a law of the sea approach with an environmental law approach. 95, the date this agreement was adopted is three, year, uh, three years after the Rio conference on, on the environment. And indeed, in the so-called Agenda 21 adopted at Rio, important paragraphs of chapter 17 on the marine environment encourage states to adopt an agreement of this kind. Uh, this is not the only uh, agreement uh, on the law of the sea developed after the convention. We have also other agreements on fisheries that can be considered as regional specialized uh, agreements uh, similar to the straddling stock, such as the Honolulu Agreement of the year 2000 and the Windhoek Agreement, I think, of the 2001. Um, one should check that. <laughs> and we have also some agreements that are uh, on different subjects. We have an agreement concluded in the framework of UNESCO on underwater cultural heritage, which tries to fill a gap in the Convention. The Convention speaks of underwater cultural heritage as far as the objects, the archaeological objects, are found within 24 miles from the baselines or in the international seabed areas, area, while it says nothing of those that are found between 24 and 200 miles. This agreement tries to fill this gap. It's a controversial agreement, but still it has entered into force for a number of states. And there is also an agreement concluded within the IMO on wrecks in which certain connections with the Law of the Sea Convention are established. But apart from treaties, and I'm mentioning especially these that can be called implementing agreement in the sense that they contain provisions uh, that uh, say that the agreements are without prejudice to the Law of the Sea Convention, and also try to develop certain aspects of the Convention. 
There are also other kinds of rules that we cannot forget when we look at the panorama of the sources of today's international law of the sea. These are what we could call the soft law rules. Uh, in international law you speak of soft law rules when you have rules that are not set up as binding. They are not uh, they do not correspond to customary law, they are not a treaty. They are resolutions, uh, they are codes of conduct which states adopt because they want to develop the law in, on a certain subject because they are ready to abide by them but they are not ready to accept that if they were not to follow them they would commit an international wrongful act. And in, in fact, the Law of the Sea Convention contains a number of references to this kind of rules, especially as far as uh, pollution is concerned. The, the provisions on pollution speak often of standards and recommended practice and procedures, which are soft law rules developed mostly by the IMO. And sometimes there is uh, something interesting. There, there are references made in the Convention to soft law rules which give to these non-binding rules a kind of binding effect. For instance, uh, under Article 211 of the Convention, laws and regulations adopted by state parties to prevent pollution by vessels shall, at I'm quoting, at least have the same effect as that of generally accepted international rules and standards established through the competent international organization or general diplomatic conference. The non-binding standards are made binding in the sense that they function as a minimum standard for legislation. So this is an interesting function of uh, soft law, which is somehow hardened through the fact that states are parties to the convention. And in some other cases, uh, there are rules that are hardened even more so. States, for instance, conclude memoranda of understanding on port state control, which provide that states shall make inspections on vessels present in their ports uh, in order to ascertain whether they are in compliance with the main convention on uh, safety at sea and on prevention of pollution. Well, in certain parts of the world, and in particular in the European uh, Union, uh, these rules, which are considered as soft law rules, have been transformed in binding regulations. So their violation is indeed in, in Europe a violation, not only of international law, but also of community law, with the connected possibility of bringing non-compliant states to court. But we have not only customary rules, the convention, treaties, soft law, rules more or less hardened through other mechanisms. We must also consider that the law of the sea of today is enriched, made more precise,
by the through the contribution of compulsory jurisdiction of international adjudicatory bodies, especially judicial and arbitral uh, tribunals. First of all, the very, very fact that, as I explained uh, before, the rule under the Convention is a rule of compulsory jurisdiction, namely that one state, unless we are within an exception, can set in motion a judicial or arbitral procedure against another state party unilaterally without obtaining its agreement. This functions, I would say, as a powerful deterrent, is a strong uh, element that influences behavior of state. A violation of the Convention, in most cases, uh, is not just a normal violation of international law, which is always regrettable for a state, but it is a violation that can trigger a case before a court. And this is uh, something states prefer to avoid. And so this is a powerful element that completes the, the uh, general framework of the applicable law. But also, whenever, in the few cases where states in fact go to court, the result of the proceedings, namely international judgment of the International Court of Justice, of the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, of arbitration tribunals, give more precision, give more flesh to the bare skeleton of the rules of the Law of the Sea Convention or of customary law. The jurisprudence of courts has indeed added a lot to the Law of the Sea Convention. Of course, this doesn't happen in a uniform way. There are certain subjects in which you have uh, certain density of international decisions on others, there are less international decisions. Probably the area in which international jurisprudence, especially of the International Court of Justice, but also of arbitration tribunal, and lately with the Bangladesh-Myanmar judgment of 15 March 2012, also by the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. This area, the most uh, intensively practiced by a tribunal, is the area of delimitation of maritime zones between states. On this, there are about 20 decisions altogether, which have made an important contribution to the interpretation and application of the rather uh, imprecise and a bit puzzling articles on the limitation we have in Articles uh, 74 and 83 of the Convention. These articles provide that the limitation should be uh, obtained by agreement and that agreement should follow international law and obtain an equitable result. Those, these articles read without interpretation 
seem to be instructions for concluding agreements and don't say anything about what happens if there is no agreement, about what law should the judge apply. Courts and tribunal have interpreted these articles as applicable also by judges and arbitrators and have developed a methodology for dealing with the limitation cases. This methodology, of course, still leaves a lot uh, to the decision on the single specific case, but is certainly a huge contribution to the development of the law through the, um, through the action of judges and arbitrators. So, in light of all these sources of the practice of judges and arbitrators, probably we can say that now we don't have only a big, huge international convention, uh, international convention, the Law of the Sea Convention of the United Nations. We have what we could call a Law of the Sea system. At the center of the system, we have the UN Convention and customary law intermingled as they are. But around this nucleus, we have treaties, we have soft law rules, we have judicial decisions. And perhaps there is one specific, a little bit technical element that should be mentioned in order to underscore that this so-called system is not only a doctrinal uh, creation, but is also something that has a technical base in law. If you take uh, the Stradling Stocks Agreement and also various other agreements concerning specific chapters of the Law of the Sea uh, concluded after the Law of the Sea Convention was adopted and even after it entered into force, such as the uh, UNESCO agreement I mentioned before or the Rex agreement I also mentioned before, you will see that when you get towards the end, the final articles of these agreements and you get to the section on the settlement of disputes, these agreements provide that disputes concerning their interpretation and application, say the interpretation and application of these agreements, shall be submitted to the law of the sea, no, sorry, the, to the settlement of disputes provisions of the law of the sea convention. Even though perhaps the parties to the dispute are not parties to the law of the sea convention. Just to make an example, the United States is bound by the Stradling Stock Agreement and is not bound by the Law of the Sea Convention. If a dispute were to arise between the United States and another state, say uh, the European Union, Brazil, Canada, whatever, these, the, the provisions of Part 15 of the Convention would apply. And so a, an arbitrator might be competent 
probably because I don't think that, that there wouldn't be declarations specifying a preference for the law of the sea tribunal or for the ICJ. But still, the rules this arbitration door would abide to would be those of the convention. And this is not the only case. In the other conventions I mentioned, uh, there are similar provisions. So we can say that the different conventions adopted, most of the different conventions adopted after the Law of the Sea Convention was adopted, are linked to the Law of the Sea Convention, not only because they deal with the Law of the Sea, because they are without prejudice to the Convention on the Law of the Sea, but also because they use the same dispute settlement mechanism. There is a specific treaty-based linkage, which I think authorizes us to speak of a law of the sea system. We can now perhaps say a few words about the possible dynamics of this system. And this system is you could ask, is this system a stable system? This would be a first question. The second question would be, is it a flexible or an inflexible system? I think the stability of the system was a top priority for the uh, drafters. If you look at the Law of the Sea Convention, there are provisions concerning amendment and even concerning a review conference, but they are extremely difficult to put in motion. Practically, they make it impossible to go through revision, amendment um, of the Law of the Sea Convention. In fact, the only way to change the system and, or, or to introduce changes to the system, which of course is not a way uh, mentioned in the Convention, is the way that has been practiced, is to add to it, to create, to establish new agreements like the Stradling Stock Agreement or the REC Agreement and so on, that develop points that are uh, only shortly dealt with in the Convention or um, that uh, introduce rules on subjects that are not dealt with with the Convention. So the flexibility is introduced through this mechanism of agreements. And this is a very flexible of, of implementing agreement. This is a very flexible mechanism because in none of these implementing agreement, apart from the famous 94, which was adopted even before the Convention entered into force, is it provided that these agreements are open only to state parties to the Convention. They are open to state parties to the Convention and to state non-parties to the Convention. The example I made before about the United States and the Stradlingstock Convention is very illustrative. So we have a system that is basically stable in the sense that the Convention is very difficult to amend, but contains certain elements of flexibility that permit to introduce new concepts and new ideas through so-called implementing agreements.